0: Well, it is wonderful to see you here today. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you're joining us for the first time, first time in a long time, we're really glad to have you. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, that you fit right in and make yourself at home here at the Vista. So today we are in the final week of our series called Good News for Anxious Christians. And all I've really tried to do in this series, and I hope it's felt this way, is just take some burdens off your shoulders, because just being a human in and of itself can be a pretty heavy burden to bear sometimes, can't it? I think it can be. And so while it's, you know, it's inevitable that we're going to experience anxiety in a fallen world, it's just part of what it means to be a human, something has gone really wrong when our faith is the primary reason we're anxious. Something has gone really wrong when the primary reason we're anxious is because we're Christians, Right? And sadly, the primary reason that so many of us are anxious, it is because we're Christians. And think about how weird that is. All the things in this fallen world we could be anxious about, but so many of us are primarily anxious about our faith. Because we've been duped into practicing this very anxious kind of Christianity, where we're always worried about everything. We're worried about whether we have enough faith, worried about whether we pray enough or pray the right way, or read the Bible enough or read the Bible the right way, share our faith enough, fight for justice enough, on and on and on. The list goes. Many of us are under this impression that Jesus has loaded us down with this endless to do list. We're under the impression that Jesus is not happy unless you are unhappy because you're really, really worried about making Jesus happy. Sound like anybody? Now, happily, this could not be further from the truth, and Jesus made it very, very clear that he came to take burdens from us, not give burdens to us. Amen? Now, so far, we've established a few very important things that you probably thought that you had to do or thought that you had to be that you don't actually have to do, that you don't actually have to be. Uh, The first week, we we discussed how you don't have to be certain. You know, the 11 apostles who saw the resurrected Christ and upon whom Christ built His church, they weren't certain. You don't have to find God's will for your life. It's already been revealed. You don't have to find anything. God's already told you everything you need to know. Last week, we talked about how you don't have to change the world. Your primary responsibility to the world is not to change the world. Rather, it's to do what? Just be a good neighbor. Just start there. Just try to be a good neighbor. And today we're going to wrap the series up by talking a bit about how you don't have to be good. I'm going to start off with um, making things very, very difficult for myself by acknowledging that the Bible, right, let's just be honest, it has a lot to say about the importance of goodness. In fact, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, the Bible relentlessly affirms the goodness of God and it relentlessly reminds us that God expects us to be like Him, which is to say that God expects us to do good and be good. There are thousands of verses we could have looked at. I just pulled seven of the most important ones. Seven felt like a good number. We're going to go through just a few places where the Bible talks about goodness. Matthew 3, verse 10. This is John the Baptist. says, "...the axe is already laid at the root of the trees... Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit gets cut down and thrown into the fire. This is Jesus, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Romans 12, 21, this is Paul. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul again, Romans 15, verse 14. And concerning you, my brothers and sisters, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves... You're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and also able to admonish one another. Galatians 5.22, this is one of the most famous ones, right? But the fruit of the Spirit, you know this, is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. goodness. Goodness is the fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. Finally, 1 Timothy 6.18, Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So with all that said, and there are many more verses that could be said, where do I get off saying that you don't have to be good? Well, I want to tell you the story of one of the most famous, important, influential Christians who ever lived. Someone who probably stands alongside only the Apostle Paul in terms of the influence that he had upon subsequent Christianity, And I'm talking, of course, about the one, the only, the Reverend Joel Osteen. What are y'all laughing about? No? Okay, I'm not talking about Joel Osteen. I'm talking about the one, the only, the German monk, pastor, theologian, author, hymn writer, the one, the only, the Reverend Martin Luther, right? You guys know Martin Luther, Martin Luther, this is Martin Luther. You can tell he's a very serious man, a little bit more serious looking than... Brother Joel, a lot of us are vaguely familiar with Luther's story, perhaps, that he was this very zealous Catholic monk who who wanted to be holy so bad. He took his faith so seriously that he confessed his sins like 15 times a day because he wanted to be holy so bad because he was worried that God was going to damn him in hell forever if he wasn't holy enough. There's great stories about Luther literally confessing his sins like 30 times a day to a confessor. The dude finally got sick of it and he's like, Luther, dude. You don't have to confess all these things. Don't come back here unless you've got a very serious sin to confess. Unless you have killed somebody, slapped somebody at the Oscars, paid Texas A&M's, football recruits, something very serious. I want you to come back unless you've got some serious sins to commit, Luther. Enough with these wimpy little sins. It's ridiculous. And while the accusations can be a bit blown out of proportion, it is generally true that the Catholic Christianity of Luther's day was very rigid, harsh and anxiety-producing. To be more specific, there was this profound anxiety about whether or not you were good enough, about whether you had fully confessed all of your sins, and this had resulted in a culture of incessant self-introspection because it wasn't enough to be a Christian because according to the prevailing theology of the day, there were going to be a lot of Christians in hell because they hadn't been good enough Christians, because they hadn't fully confessed their sins. There was this idea of something called mortal sins, very, very serious sins. And if you died with unconfessed mortal sins, it didn't matter if you were a Christian, you were still going to hell, because you hadn't been a good enough Christian. And you put all this together, and you're left with a bunch of Christians who are anxiously and endlessly litigating their thoughts and motives and behaviors, and litigating other people's thoughts and motives and behaviors. And it should come as no surprise that this was pretty pretty, miserable. Can you imagine? It's absolutely miserable. And so Luther is the poster child for this zealous but miserably anxious Christianity of his day. It becomes very difficult to separate fact from fiction here because his story has taken on such mythic proportions. But what's clear is that at some point Luther has this breakthrough where he realizes that the good news of the gospel had mutated into the bad news that God would love you and save you if you were a good enough Christian. What not enough to be a Christian. You had to be a good enough Christian. And I want to hit pause here and linger just a bit. Because it's so, so important that we understand how this happened. And even more importantly, that we understand how this still happens. How it is happening to many of us here in the room today. And so we've already established that the Bible from beginning to end is filled with these commands to do good and be good with expectations to do that, which means that there's this powerful, like moral zealot streak within the Christian tradition. Any of you know any moral zealots? we know who you are, There's this powerful moral zealot streak within the Christian tradition. And again, that's a good thing. It's in the Bible and and it's a good thing because it can push us to be disciplined and faithful and holy. The moral zealot streak is a wonderful thing. But it can also be a really, really bad thing when it is not held in check, when it's not balanced by a whole lot of other really important things that are also in the Bible. So to be more specific, while there is this moral zealot streak, this command to do good and be good within Scripture, it is always held in tension with the, I like to call it, don't you ever forget that you're a sinner who could never, ever, 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 ever be that good streak within the Christian tradition. And so within the Bible, you've got all these commands to do good and be good. All these commands to do that. But the Bible is also filled with reminders that you, even on your very best day, even in your very best moment, on your very best day, you're just not very good. We're going to look at a few places in the Bible where we're reminded that you're just not very good. Isaiah 64, 6, this is a good one. He says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds <clears throat> excuse me are like filthy garments now this, this phrase filthy garments it referred to the cloth that females would use when you get it right I don't need to fill in any more blanks there it's not a clean thing right and what is the writer saying hey I want you to think about the thing you've done lately that you're most proud of the greatest thing you did I helped my mom move yesterday right isn't that amazing I'm a great person well, you pay somebody's rent you post something inspiring on Facebook Instagram Twitter what's the greatest thing you've done what does Isaiah say that's like a filthy garment, man. It's very hard to impress God. Not impressed. The greatest deed you've done. God's not impressed by it. He says it's like a filthy garment. All right? Matthew 7, verses 8 through 11. This is Jesus. He says, For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it'll be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son, asking for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you will not give him a snake, will you? So if you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Jesus, in no uncertain terms, says, You're what? He, and he just says it in an offhand way. I love it. He's like, You know, because you're evil and stuff. Like, you know, duh, you are. Romans 3, verse 10 through 12. This is Paul. He says, That it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This verse appears verbatim three different times in the Bible. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Romans 3. It's as if God is like, hey, they're really going to need this one. Let's get it in there a few times, okay? Maybe in Psalms, that's a popular book in Romans. The two most popular books. We're going to put it in there a lot. And so think about this. God, in God's infinite wisdom, decided to fill the Bible with commands to do good and be good. And yet God, in His infinite wisdom, decided also to fill the Bible with reminders that you're just really not very good. And so why would God do that? Why would God fill the Bible with these two things? One of the things that I've become increasingly convinced of as I get older is that tension creates growth. Tension creates growth. Now, this is true across the board. It's true of our bodies. If you want to have a strong, healthy body, then your muscles are going to need some tension at some point. You have to. You can't just sit around in in your armchair all day. You're going to have to have some tension if you want to have a strong, healthy body. It's true of our politics. Because if everybody in the room thinks the exact same way, then we're going to develop some enormous blind spots because we're missing those voices that will see and say the things that we don't naturally see or say. Tension creates growth, but humans mostly do not like tension. And so instead of seeing tension as a really important part of our health and growth, we tend to see tension as a problem that we need to solve. We see tension as a nuisance that we need to get rid of. And so you know how it goes. Working out sucks. I'm not going to do it. It would be easier if I just got a divorce. Everything would just be better if everybody thought exactly like me and all the politicians voted exactly the way I did. Have you heard that one before? Hmm. I'm a bit skeptical. Of that history makes me a bit skeptical of that. So that's the way we tend to think. But so much of the time, the tension is not a problem that you need to solve. But rather, the tension is a gift that God is stubbornly insisting that you learn how to receive. And so as it relates to the subject at hand, God, in His infinite wisdom, apparently thought that we need to be both commanded to do good... And be good, and yet also constantly reminded that we're just not very good because that tension creates the space that the gospel needs to flourish and grow in our lives. Because as we've said before numerous times here, y'all, the gospel, it's not something that you master so that you can then move on to bigger and better, more important, and spiritual things. Because rather than mastering and then moving on from the gospel, we will spend the entirety of our lives moving deeper and deeper into. The gospel. We will never, ever, 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 ever move beyond it. You never move beyond the gospel. You just move deeper into it. And to that point, let's just remind ourselves what the good news of the gospel actually is because it's very easy to miss. All right? Let's turn to Romans 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 11. Romans 5, 6 through 11. will be here on the screen for you as well. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved By his life, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So notice, this is so easy to miss. Notice, the good news of the gospel is not that God will forgive you if you want to be forgiven. It's not that you raise your hand and you say, hey God, I'd like to be forgiven. God says, okay, I'll grant it. No, rather the good news of the gospel is that you were forgiven before you could have ever even dreamed of asking for it. There is not an unforgiven person on the face of the planet. There will never be an unforgiven person. Now, can you receive that you've been forgiven? Well, that's on you. But on God's end, there is nothing left to be done. God's not waiting around for you to forgive you. And notice the good news of the gospel is not that God will reconcile himself to you if you decide that you first want to be reconciled to God. That you raise your hand and you say, Hey, God, I think I'd like to be your friend. And God says, Okay, I'll allow it. I'll be your buddy. No, what what does Paul say here? You are reconciled to God When? while you were God's enemy. That's when you were reconciled to God. You brought nothing to the table. There is nothing you could ever do to deserve your seat at the table. There is nothing you could do to ever deserve keeping your seat at the table. God is incapable of ever owing you anything. And yet God has freely chosen to give you everything. That is the gospel. All that to say, Scripture is very clear that while God's faithfulness to us will create goodness in us, the fruit of the Spirit, your goodness is not a prerequisite for God's faithfulness. The only prerequisite for God's faithfulness is God's faithfulness. It has nothing to do with you. And this is literally Christianity 101. So you would think we would have it down. But in my experience, we mostly don't. Which is why the greatest threat to the gospel will always be Christians. Sometimes people ask me, Austin, what do you think the greatest threat to Christianity is? And i always tell them. Probably me. That's the way I tend to think about it. It's probably me. And here's what I mean. Somewhat paradoxically, our attempts to maintain the purity of the gospel often cause us to water the gospel down. I'll use myself as an example. I was 16 years old when God really got a hold of my life. Uh, And I was filled with this passion and zeal for the gospel and for the mission of God in the world. And because of that, I was also very frustrated by all the shallow, lukewarm, wimpy Christianity that I thought I saw everywhere all around me. And so um, there was this point in high school when I approached my youth pastor and I told him that I wanted to start a new Bible study a Bible study called this is very, very embarrassing we were going to call the Bible study the deep end with the implication being that what he was doing was the shallow end <laughs> 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 luckily though God had gifted him with me so that I could make sure everybody was deep deep according to me probably come as no surprise that I was very inseparable back then even more so than now And God has, I hope, since humbled me by helping me to see that my frustration with like lukewarm, watered down Christianity, it was causing me to water the gospel down, only I was doing it in a different way. Because the moment you forget that your goodness is not a prerequisite for God's faithfulness, the moment you forget that you don't have to be good, the moment you forget that you are in point of fact not good then you have watered the gospel down just as much as people who treat God like their cosmic butler, right? Because mean, ungracious, self-righteous Christianity is just as watered down as lukewarm, cultural, country club Christianity. They just use different ingredients to water it down. They dilute it with a different mixer, okay? One waters the gospel down with what Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace, but the other waters the gospel down with ungracious grace. And they're both... Watering the gospel down think about it like this if there was ever a human who was just a great person it's probably the apostle Paul right? I mean what a guy what a guy and yet do you remember what Paul had to say about his own goodness? now this is 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 I love this he says hey this saying is trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them I'm the worst of them. And I really don't think that Paul was being hyperbolic here. y'all. I think that Paul was so humbled by his sin that he genuinely believed that he was the worst sinner on the planet. And yet notice, Paul didn't find this shameful. Do you notice that? Paul didn't find it shameful. Instead, he found it liberating because it meant that he could stop exhausting himself in this pursuit to be good enough because he could just accept that he wasn't and then joyfully move on because his faith was now in God's goodness and not his goodness. And so whether he was good enough was now a very uninteresting question. It was very beside the point because Paul has made his peace with, I'm not good enough, but it's really not about that. And this is so liberating. And I've shared with you all before, um, we pastors, we sometimes feel this very weird, usually unspoken expectation to be like, the best. You know, we're supposed to be like the best people in our churches, the best people in our communities. We're supposed to have the best marriages, the best kids. Y'all know that's not true. Uh, we're, supposed to have, we're supposed to have the best state. We're supposed to be the best. The best. We're supposed to be the best. That's our job is to be the best. And I've always really struggled with this expectation because y'all, I'm just not very good. Ask anybody who knows me, I'm just really not very good. I made a five-year-old cry in a t-ball game two weeks ago. true story he got thrown at it first and he was very very sad about it and so I saw a pastoral opportunity and so I looked into his sad tearful eyes and I whispered just quietly enough so his mom couldn't hear it in the stands and I said maybe that'll teach you to practice harder (laughs) hey and he cried and I felt so happy inside because i had made my point apparently I know y'all are thinking, like, I'm not going to let Austin coach my kid. To be clear, (laughs) to be clear, it was my son who I made cry, and it was my wife who I was trying to avoid getting in trouble with, but I'm just not a very good person. All that to say, Paul helped me understand that I'm not your pastor because I'm good. I'm really not. I'm not your pastor because I'm the best. Y'all, I am your pastor because I'm the worst. That's why I'm here. So that you can have a constant reminder that you have no excuse, okay? That's why I'm here. So you can have a constant reminder that if God could use somebody as bad as me, like seriously, I'm not, I'm not being I'm just not a great person, then you don't have any excuse. And so let's end with this. All of us desire acceptance. All of us. And we mostly want to be accepted because we're good. Now, what you want to be good at might differ, but we all want to be accepted because we're good. Accepted because we're good thinkers, good leaders, good parents, good listeners, good friends, good looking good Christians. But the good news of the gospel is not that you've been accepted because you're good. The good news of the gospel is that you've been accepted because you are loved by a good and gracious God. I love the way Jürgen Moltmann puts this. He says, Sinners are beautiful because they are loved. They are not loved because they are beautiful. And so some of us here today, um, we need to stop staring at our spiritual belly buttons all day long. You know, we need to stop exhausting ourselves and everybody around us out with this chronic, angsty, am I good enough? Are you good enough? Introspection. No, you're not good enough. Please stop it. It's beside the point whether or not you're good enough. But then some of us here today need to stop using our lack of goodness as an excuse. Need to stop sitting around telling ourselves that like there will be this one magic day where we'll finally become good enough for God to start using. And you know who you are. I'm not throwing any stones here, but you know who you are. You're the person who's been thinking about stepping up to, uh, to start the small group, to join the small group, to coach a little league team, to invite your neighbor to church, to tell your neighbor about Jesus, but you just keep telling yourself what? That today's not the day because you're just not good enough. Yeah, but you'll get there, but it's not today. Don't know when it's going to be, but it's not yet. And so let me help you out here. That day that you're waiting on, that magical day, Mythical spiritual day when you'll finally be good enough for God to use. It ain't happening. And it ain't happening because it has already happened. Because it happened in AD 33. It happened when Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead because that was the day that God claimed you, the day God unconditionally called you and accepted you and reminded you that you being good enough for Him to use has nothing to do with how good you are and everything to do with how good God is. And so I want to end this series with a firm, but I promise a very friendly invitation stop being so anxious about your goodness because your goodness is, frankly, beside the point. Stop being so anxious about your goodness. Let it go. Confess it and move on. You're not that good. It's okay. It's beside the point. And start being grateful and excited about God's goodness. Right. We're going to watch another short little video from uh, another VISTA family member, my friend Whitney. Whitney. She does a great job talking about how she was able to move on past being anxious about her goodness all the time, towards being grateful for God's goodness. Let's check it out.
1: Uh, The Lord had really put it on my heart to give up alcohol, and it had been something that I had tried I don't know how many times on my own, and I finally just totally surrendered and said, Lord, I can't do this on my own. Um, I don't have the willpower. I don't have the discipline. Um, I didn't even have the courage to do it. And um, it was like in that moment when I totally gave up and came to the end of myself, then I started having the strength to not take a drink of alcohol. Um, Wine was my big thing. So five o'clock came around, I was like, okay, Lord, this is where you gotta show up big. Um, And he did, He, he showed up really big. Um, And that was really a gateway, a segue into uh, seeing that it was possible to apply that same, I'm not good enough, I need your help with weight loss. Um, And then into another area, when Jake and I decided that we wanted to start a business, how are we going to have this provide for our family, Um, pay bills, um, and surrendering that in that same form of, God, I don't know how, but you do. And, um, man, he does show up big when we, when we say, <laughs> I'm not good enough, but you are.
0: I love that last line. I'm not good enough, God, but you are. right? And that's what the gospel looks like in action. I'm not good enough, but that's beside the point. My goodness is utterly antiquated. I'm not good enough, but God, you are.